0: Today is July 24th, 2014, and my guests are Reed Hoffman and Ben Kaznoka. Reed is the co founder and executive chairman of LinkedIn. Ben is Reed's former chief of staff. Together with Chris Yeh, they are the authors of most recently The Alliance Managing Talent in the Networked Age. Reed and Ben, welcome to Econ Talk. Great to be here. Good to be here. Let's start with the origins of LinkedIn. Um, what was the original concept? It's surprisingly to me, maybe to you. It's uh, over 11 years old, correct? So how did <laughs> well, it start? Well, not
1: surprising given I lived it. <laughs> um, but the, the kind of the high line was the way that uh, I ideate about things is I think about what is the world as it should be given certain kinds of technology. I've been thinking a lot about, over the decades, about identity networks um, and how this helps us navigate having better lives both as individuals and society. And so after I uh, helped sell PayPal to eBay, I was like, well, what should I do with, and this is new language, but my new tour of duty, my next tour of duty, I said, well, actually, in fact, I see this future in which it's much better off for every individual to have a public professional identity, a network they're associated with it, applications built on top of it. Most people don't see that right now, but I do think that they individually and as as companies and as society are all better off with that. And I think I have an opportunity to create that. And so as opposed to taking a year off, which was my initial plan post-PayPal, I took two weeks off. Which but, you
0: earned, I suspect.
1: Uh, yes, it was. It was it, a little uh, bit intense. It was very intense. Um, and so I took two weeks and went and visited a friend of mine in Australia and stayed at
0: his beach house. And then came back and started LinkedIn. And your original concept, you've given it a bright outline, but how did it start when it was actually in, up and going? Well, part of how you do consumer Internet, the, major, the vast majority
1: of consumer Internet companies is you think of what is your minimum viable product by which you can launch. You have to have answers for questions like how does it spread or how do people encounter it? What are the first value propositions? And even though we knew that there was going to be this entire stack of things, including things that we'll work on a day, which is like how do you have the best business content for every individual, the relevancy from, from getting from shares from their network and everything else, even though we knew all that, we didn't start with any of that. We started with you have a profile, you have a network of people around you, you have an ability to do search, you have an ability to communicate. And we just started with that. And so the first, say,
0: month was what is the minimum viable product that we can launch such that we can iterate as we go. And being an academic, uh, I don't use LinkedIn perhaps as much as I might. Uh, when I looked at it originally, I thought, well, this is, this is just a place you post your resume, right? Mm-hmm. This is a place – it's like a bulletin board. Is that how you saw it initially? Because uh, it's certainly much, much more than that now. But that was how it, it looks for an outsider being hearing about it in, say, 140 characters. Well, we knew
1: that that would be the first interpretation of it. And we knew that that would be the first solid business model part of it. We knew that when people say, well, I have a public professional identity and I have a network, what do I most use that for? Well, like job searching or recruiting. And we knew there would be economics associated with that. But part of the reason that we knew, like I've been talking since the very beginning about network as a platform, is because your identity and your network is a platform for a set of applications that help you work better, help you navigate your career better, help you be better informed. And we knew that that was, um, we built that into our data structures. We knew that that was part of where we were going from the very beginning, even though we actually focused for years on just solving primarily the work circumstance. Now, from very early, most people, I'll give you two
0: examples of how most people don't know how to use LinkedIn, and in fact— You mean even now? Even now. It's possible. <laughs> I have a profile. Evidently, you're supposed to have a picture on it. I don't. <laughs> I will fix that before maybe before even this airs. <laughs> uh, a picture is useful. Uh, and that will,
1: also, that will condition which of the two things I say first. So the first thing is, if you ask most people, do you understand that you're living and working in a networked age, they'll say yes, they'll wave to their cell phone, they'll say, here, see, sure. look, I'm connected. To have a strategy in a networked age, you have a strategy for how you're being found, for because there's millions of people out there, and of course you don't want all million to contact you. What the relevant people, the people who are thinking about something that could be really interesting to you, could be a business opportunity, could be a job, could be a piece of intelligence, could be a, a, a person for your show or something. Like, how are you found the right way? Now you you do the podcast and else, but. But searching for people, searching is part of what happens at a networked age, and how are you discoverable? Yeah, That
0: last part's the part you forget about, because you're yes. usually seeking. You're yes. forgetting that people are looking
2: for you. Yes. Well, it's actually one of the amazing things about LinkedIn is, is— This is Ben. This Go is ahead, Ben. Yeah, the, the, to get people to update their resume when they're not looking for a job <laughs> was actually a profound accomplishment. I mean, that, sure. that's, that was really a shift for people, right? Yeah. I'm not actively looking for a job, and yet I'm going to continue to update my profile— in pursuit of being found in some kind of abstract long-term way.
1: Yes. Well, an abstract in that you don't know exactly what you're hoping to be found for because you don't know what those millions of people, but sometimes the absolute best things come in that way, and that's super important both for you and for your company because being found sometimes helps your company
0: a whole bunch as well. Yeah, and We you know, we, we we forget about this. Maybe you do, maybe you don't, but I think those of us who are not paying close attention to LinkedIn, I mean, one of the most extraordinary things about it, looking at, at it as an economist, is that it lets you look for a job in a quiet way without being looking for without looking for a job and as an economist i look at that and i think well that reminds me of ronald coase because coase is about transaction costs and how transactions costs disrupt markets and what linkedin does more than anything it seems to me is lower transactions costs which means more transactions yep. which means people put in better places where they're more productive, more happy, etc. It's a good thing. Yep. And actually, so by the way, all of the, 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 uh, the ec- most of the
1: economic thinking was there from the very beginning. So the, okay. the, the lowering transaction costs, the increasing transparency, increasing liquidity. But also, by the way, one of the really key things is adding in reputation. So the that fact that, for example, someone who is diligent, who Uh, essentially does the work, is a good collaborator, doesn't have anger management problems, you know, uh, uh, goes the extra mile in order to to get to outcomes, that reputation now is much more discoverable. It's much more shareable, as is the inverse. And by having essentially reputation, uh, that also increases the directory for good people and creates the better allocation of great assets to great projects.
0: And the incentives for bad people to be good people, which sometimes isn't a matter of skill, but a matter of diligence or focus or... One thing I think about, and I'm sure you guys thought about this a lot, is uh, a lot of what we're talking about in the networked age, uh, from Yelp to Google to Amazon Books to LinkedIn to Airbnb, is about relying on the ratings of others, ra- users, people who've actually experienced the product rather than experts who, say, Consumer reports that tells you the best dishwasher. Um, that's a glorious thing. At the same time, it's hard for people to be honest sometimes in those situations. I've had people tell me, oh, yeah, Airbnb, everybody gets a rave because people feel guilty. They've stayed in their house. Can't really say bad things about them. I know that on Uber, if, you give a, if a driver gets less than a 4.6, he's fired. So it makes me worry. It makes me feel guilty giving a guy a 4. So similarly, without naming names and without naming details, I've been praised for skills, endorsed for skills I don't have. Uh, how do you— there's a lot better way to say this. There's a lot of noise mm-hmm. in the in the, ring, mm-hmm. in the LinkedIn uh, reputational stuff. How do you think that plays into the the effectiveness of it?
1: Well, many of the reputation pieces, especially like the, the skills endorsements at the very early, it's kind of like a 0.5 version of the feature. And there's things that, that we need to build in that help enhance the no. Like for example, uh, you've been endorsed as a uh, as an economics, you know, as an expert in economics by people who themselves have economic skill, you know, that kind of thing, or the kind of natural evolution in order to make that better.
0: Yeah, that should be worth more points.
1: Yes, and, and then more featured, more prominently, part of the reputation when you look at the profile, you know, these sorts of things. And so there's a bunch of stuff to build towards. Now, that being said, a frequent comment that we get is we also have these kind of the equivalent of book blurbs um, kind of endorsements that say, well, those are all positive. Like book blurbs, by yes. the way, <laughs> which are all positive. Strangely enough. <laughs> right. And, but there's still useful intelligence because it says that someone's willing to go on the record, Absolutely. who they are with their identity. They say this is something that's important. And that's a valuable additional source of intel when you're trying to figure out, should I approach this person? Should I do business with them? Should I – and, and that's what – there is some noise, but there is valuable signal you can discern there as well. So,
0: so let's go back to the, um, the evolution of the, of, the, um, of the site. When you started, there were a lot of people doing stuff like what you were doing. Friendster, MySpace, Facebook, um, some of them fell by the wayside and a couple of them got really, really big. Why do you think that, besides the fact that you're really smart, why do you think that happened? what did you do right? You can mention what you did wrong along the way if you want.
1: Well, um, the primary thing that we did right is we stayed current to our vision, which was we are about people's economic lives, we're about their career, we're about how they work, and so, for example, we got, I mean, I got uh, from, from friends of mine, from highly intelligent commentators, you know, I got told all the time, like, you're being an idiot. You should put social games on it. You should do you, all these things. You don't realize, look at how big these things are getting. You should do that. And I was like, nope. we're staying to what our value proposition is, what our promise is, the thing that we, the, wh- where it is we play a role in people's lives. And we're, we're focused on that. And that was seriously important. Right. How hard was it to ignore those? Well, it's hard because when people adopt technologies, they generally don't start within the productivity suite. They start within entertainment. They start within kind of consumer. They start within optional. So, it's photo sharing is easy. Social games is easy, you know. And it's kind of like, look, I'll go play with it. I don't like. I'll stop doing it. Things that, like for example, affect my economic life, like well. How will I be looked at if I have a profile on LinkedIn? Because if it goes down, that's a seriously important thing. So people are much more risk-averse, much more hesitant in order to do that sort of thing. And that's the reason why everyone else thought they were being just product geniuses. Like, for example, a common thing I hear about LinkedIn is like, well, LinkedIn's boring, right? You know. Stodgy. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And you go, okay. Look, maybe it's true because we're not focused on pictures. We're not focused on entertainment. We're not focused on kind of like five minutes of give me a like an adrenaline hit. We're focused on how do we help your work? How do we help your career? How do we help, you know, kind of uh, add value to what you're doing over, you know, days, years, decades. and um, And that sometimes means we don't invest in something that's kind of lightweight and entertaining. We invest in other kinds of things. That has, I think, been very successful for us in terms of staying focused on the, the long-term. Now, I think some of the things that we did wrong is we launched our Groups product too early. Uh, we, groups is an important part of work. It is an important trade associations, company alumni groups, you know, university alumni groups, is all important. We launched it very early because we were worried about some competitors that were trying to compete with us by doing groups. Sure. And actually, in retrospect, what I would have done is said, no, 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 let's wait until groups are right. Like like into the right thing, and we really put a lot of work into them, which is what we've been doing for the last year, right? And you know, hopefully, we'll continue. But um, that would be the kind of thing that we did wrong.
2: Reid, you said there are some competitors in the early days, of LinkedIn, that actually had a very different thesis that every individual mm. is going to have their own yep. individual identity. Again, it's something that seems so obvious now, but early days to have your own page yeah. that existed for you as your own kind of personal brand. What was the company that was linking it to basically wherever you worked that was was the identity?
1: Yeah, there was 80% plus of actually our our competitors. Because we didn't look at the social networks competitors. We looked at uh, Rise and um, uh, Zero Degrees and a bunch of other things. That were doing what? Well, some of them were doing. Rise was a little bit more like us. Um, Zero Degrees and uh, Visible Path were both in the category of... um, uh, your company owns your network, right? Yes, it's a network world, but it isn't you having your individual identity. It's you are part
0: of a company. And, it, and that's really, in a way, that's why Gmail was, became so attractive because it wasn't your company's email address anymore. Yes. Or your school's or whatever it was. You know? Exactly. And well What, uh, what, what uh, I knew to be
1: right, and this is actually part of the intellectual foundation of the Alliance swell, is what I knew to be right is it's... It's how do you align interest between the individual and company. It's not that the individual is assumed in the company. Correct. It's the individual has their own identity, their own persistence that goes with them in their entire career. Even if they work their entire career at a company, happens less and less these days, but even if they do. Uh, and then the company should view the individual's network as assets that the individual co- brings into play, in like, just like their skills and everything else, but they're the individuals, they're not the companies. Right And that when you get an alliance, you get an allegiance between them, then great things can happen.
0: How much of the evolution of the of of what is there now came from that original vision versus user experience and what you saw they were looking for, that you weren't providing and decided to provide?
1: ninety five percent of the features and everything else we've done were all part of the initial conception. There's a bunch of things that are also part of the initial conception that aren't on the site yet. There was a relatively robust, like you really take, what is this vision of individuals having an independent brand, you know, network and identity aligned with companies, aligned, you know, projected over time, and what is that a platform for? We had all those. Now the details, the order in which they came, the way that the minimum viable product, the way that they were iterated, all of that came from market feedback. All of that came from. Oh, well, now it's time. Like, I'll give you an example of something that launched much earlier than we were thinking. We thought we were going to be completely individual for years and years and years. And we started having companies come and knock on our door and say, how do we buy your product? We, we want to buy your product as a company. And we're like, oh, well, we were expecting you to call, but we were expecting you to call like three years later. Like, yeah. not right now. So what we did is we said, well, let, let's mock up something. Let's put these two engineers in a corner, build up something for, specifically for companies, and let's hire a salesperson. And let's see how that goes. And let's go, oh, that's going really well okay, let's invest a bunch more in that. And so, so timing and sequencing... Uh, that was a recruiting product. That was a recruiting product, yeah. yes, very specifically.
0: But how much, for example, now, you know, originally, and still I think a lot of people think of LinkedIn as a job search company, but you're much more than a job search company. You're a yeah. way people find people they want to do business with. Salespeople use it, uh, not just recruiters, and in dramatically different ways than people had access to information 10 years ago. Did that come from the beginning? Did yes. you see that as the part of the vision? Yep,
1: because the idea is what happens when you tie search to a trust network uh, and how does that affect all forms of business? So this is the other thing, the other, I told you I was going to tell you two ways that people don't understand the network to age and LinkedIn. This is the other one, which is basically take something that you're, some problem you're trying to solve, go to LinkedIn and type in some terms that are appropriate to that and search around your network. Literally Every single person I've done this with every single time has been surprised going, oh, so-and-so is two degrees out from me, and they could be really helpful. They could take the time that I'm trying to solve this problem from three hours to 15 minutes. I can ask the person I know, oh, is this person really good at it? Should I talk to them? I can get an introduction to them. And yet very few people do that because they don't think that they're living and working in the networked age. And so that problem set, I mean, look, this goes all the way back to one of my co-founders, Jean-Luc Vallon, and I had a conversation like, a year and a half in LinkedIn, where he's like, well, I totally get this for a recruiting case, but really, how should I tell my friends about how to use this? I like, look, what kind of problem are you trying to solve? He said, well, I'm trying to figure out right now if we should use this new kind of hosted data center. And I forget the terms. This is years ago, like a decade ago. He said, okay, these terms. And I went and typed them into his account. And I said, okay, these three people who are two degrees away from you, would it help you to talk to them? And he's like, Yep. I <laughs> said, like, and could you ask the person? There's a person that you know in between them. Would that person be a good judge if they were expert and be able to give you a good introduction? He's like, yes. Your problem just goes from weeks to days.
2: Well, most people don't even think about two degrees away. I mean, it's yes. funny how natural that comes, but it is the profound difference between LinkedIn and Facebook. Right? Facebook shows your friends, and that's it. <clears> LinkedIn, from the very beginning, you had this two degrees, three degrees of separation, and so it really made central the idea of you can get an introduction and have a warm referral into somebody who can help you in your network is bigger than you think. Yes, it also this is our first tagline.
0: Yeah, that's <laughs> nice. Uh, it strikes me that you know, for those of us who blog or have a, a podcast, we have a broadcast medium but uh, where we can ask people stuff. You know, We can get our problems solved. People do it in blogs all the time. Uh, I don't think most, as you say, most everyday people don't realize that they have such a a megaphone if they want to use it.
1: Yes, and it's all levels. It goes up from, for example, a step up is just having a LinkedIn profile. It's a very light, it's not it's not a megaphone. Maybe it's a it's it's a, it's a um it's a it's it's saying a word. And then it kind of scales up and you can you can uh I actually think generally speaking, it's wise for most people who are ambitious in their career to think about how they participate in social media. They may elect to do very little, that's a perfectly acceptable answer, but what is your strategy
0: for being found? Yeah. And of course, some people don't want to be found, as, as, as we know. Uh, and may, being found makes them uneasy. Uh, they also, uh, I just think about my wife, who's just, hmm. has a, 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 a religious aversion to, to being on social media. And it gets lonelier and lonelier, you know. People say, did you see this? Did, where'd you get that? Oh, everybody, quote, everybody's seen it. It's a different world. It's an Amazing thing. Well, it becomes a competitive disadvantage.
1: Yeah, I actually think sure. that if you take the networked age and you say, I don't want to be found, it's, it's, a, it's a strategic and ongoing structural disadvantage.
0: Yeah. Well, it depends what your goals are in life, but in many areas yeah. for sure. Uh, I was talking to a person in sales the other day and he said, most salespeople don't like technology. You know, they view it as, I think they view it as sort of like cheating. You know, it's <laughs> like I just use my charisma and my charm and I remember everything I need to. Maybe I have a notebook. But the idea that that's a disadvantage, obviously. Yeah. Um, now, I saw from data data from last year that LinkedIn has 225 million uh, members. The U.S. publicly announced over 300. Okay, the U.S. at the time was 77. What are we at? Um, I don't actually know what the public number. is. Doesn't matter. Is. Yes, but, but the U.S. is is not half, which which yeah, is surprising, perhaps. Um, Is LinkedIn used differently outside the United States than in the United States? We have a very unusual business culture. Do do you see those differences? Do you know of them? Well, first, let's start
1: that we designed LinkedIn to be the right economic system, right? So we actually, even though we're rooted in American culture and whatnot, and obviously that informs some of our decisions in ways that we're blind to and we try to correct for, the actual thing is what's best for the individual, for the company, and for the society on an economic basis. Well, how should the system work? That's what we build to. Now, as such of that, we do have, you know, some areas which are massive. So, for example, for years, the highest per capita usage of LinkedIn was actually in the Netherlands. The Prime Minister of Netherlands was the first, uh, government official who started using it actively, not just having their staff set up, but I use it, and I'm using it for things. Uh, And that's because small company uh, country uh, does a lot of cross-border trade, is 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 used to the notion of actually, in fact, we have to be out there in the network, and so intense usage. Uh, Singapore also very similarly intense usage. Uh, Other countries, um, uh, Japan, for example. Well, even though the the job landscape has changed, even though you uh, the whole like salary man, you live there, you you work there, it was one company your entire life has radically fallen off. Correct. It's still, oh, it's a little shameful. Like, like for example, uh, one of our earliest, uh, we got a pitch from a Japanese company that we really love your product. We want to do a uh, joint venture in Japan. The one thing we have to do is we have to remove people's names. <laughs> right? You're like, no, that's not our product. <laughs> we want a different product, but our product has real identities. Yeah.
2: <laughs> right, so. Yeah. In Japan for many years has been pseudonyms, right? Yes,
1: well, because all online has been pseudonyms because. It's a
2: really interesting cultural. Yeah.
1: As a cultural phenomenon. That's kind of an issue. issue. And Korea has some, you know, challenges in terms of what looks like uh, loyalty to the company.
0: Now, LinkedIn appears to me, tell me if I'm wrong, to be mainly for educated people, white collar occupations. Is that true? And do you see an opportunity for LinkedIn or another product to help coordinate work activity for blue collar workers? So
1: we think that the blue-collar workers is a long-term part of the strategy. It starts with the, the high-end, um, the people with the most elite skills, most in-demand, uh, you know, highest kind of career prospects. Uh, there's the natural intersection of why companies would use the product, for, why individuals use the product, and that's why it starts there. Uh, ultimately LinkedIn should be useful for anyone that has some notion of career, some notion of getting better at their job, some notion of making progress. Because the how do you invest in yourself, how do you get new opportunities, all of that, ultimately networked age comes down to identity and network. So LinkedIn should be applicable
0: everywhere. Yeah, I, I just think about unemployed construction workers in Nevada who maybe are still sitting there hoping the housing booms are going to come back, and they sit there. And they should move some yes. of them. Uh, you know, the ch- a choke I've used before in here. You know, the problem with some areas is luggage. You just need to get people out the door. They need to be someplace different. That's the best way to help them. One they of don't the terrible
2: need- things about housing policy in the U.S. Right? Correct, is it when tends a to a home. It's harder to move.
0: Correct, tomorrow. it tends to lock people in. Um, yeah, people seem to forget that when they talk about the virtues of home ownership. It drives me crazy that, that home ownership is this religious, romantic ideal. It's silly uh, just a house just an asset often a bad one expensive one for the, some people not the right one um but anyway i just think about them thinking you know there are jobs for my skills somewhere else or their skills i could acquire and they don't know where yes. they're just sitting there
1: or thinking about for example doing some internships uh trying some other work even if you're saying look I, my long-term strategy i think two years the construction market's going to come back what do you do while you're doing that do some freelancing. Do, do, you know, try some other things. Right? So as to have adaptability, have flexibility, in case you're wrong about the two years, in case you discover something that's interesting. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. What do you think is the biggest education or training problem in the workforce today? And do you see that? Do you look at that? Do you keep an eye on it? Because you're seeing these searches. So you know what people are looking for. You see what people are having trouble finding. Well, we um, we publish a bunch of things in terms of like, for example, what
1: skills are most trending at LinkedIn. Um, you know, what buzzwords not to use in your LinkedIn profile uh, because people. What would be one of those? Uh, uh, let's see. <laughs> I think uh, leverage was one mm-hmm. from last year.
2: Yeah, innovative. Yeah, yeah. innovative. Creative. But, I mean.
0: Yeah, you're not supposed to use those. Uh, but I am creative and innovative. <laughs> what, do mean, what do you do if you're one of those people? You have well, to find a You have to find very a very creative synonym. and
2: innovative to use those words. <laughs> yeah, Sorry okay. Right. Okay. <laughs> right. Uh, Especially <laughs> in succession, <laughs> separated <laughs> by commas.
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah. It, it's don't don't think of of your public identity as buzzword bingo. Um, and so uh, it's a bumper sticker. <laughs> yes. And so um, uh, you know, but uh, we do actually uh, we work with entities like Hope Street Group to try to figure out. How do you publicize what the the terms are so educators can prepare for it and you know uh, governments can figure out how to do the right programs? I mean, I think the kinds of you know obviously here in Silicon Valley we tend to think a lot about like I'm a massive supporter of this this initiative by Hadi Partovi called Code.org, which makes sure that CS is taught in every high school. That doesn't mean
0: everyone should be a computer programmer, computer science, CS. Yes. Computer science, yes. I, we're in we're in the heartland here. You got to yeah. remember outside. <laughs> uh, and um, but,
1: for example, uh, obviously, computer science software is changing all industries. Everyone should understand something about computer science, whether or not you become a computer scientist or not or a programmer yourself or not as a you know it should be in every high school. so those are kinds of things, but it goes across the um, uh, it changes based on industry. I mean, there's, there's. I don't know what the trends are, what's happening in, in the energy industry, you know, and petroleum. But I'm sure there, there, there are two. Uh, we see that because it shows up in people's profiles. It shows them job listings. It shows up in, in, and what happens when a person gets a promotion? What do they add to their profile? These sorts of things.
0: So let's do a thought experiment. I'm gonna, t- you're gonna take your year off now, and at the end of that year, you're gonna have a lot of deep thoughts, and then you're gonna run a high school. Uh huh and you know that work is not the only thing people care about, but it's an important thing. Yep. Um, tell me what that computer science class there is going to do for me as a junior, say, because as seniors, they don't pay any attention, <laughs> uh, but say as a junior. Um, and uh, what else would you put in that school that would get people ready for their careers? So
1: I'd say um, three things. So the first thing is, is I would actually make as part of a classroom instruction – bringing in various professionals, teachers, everything else, and talk about what their work life is so that people have some visibility. So the whole notion of separating the academy from the work life is insane. Bizarre, yeah, insane, <laughs> right? And so,
2: failure of imagination is yeah. what bedevils so many people when thinking about. their they can't actually imagine yeah. more than four or five professions. So yes, yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So so so. And that. they usually end. They're usually preceded by law school somehow. So <laughs> so I know I got to go to college, but then after that, like I probably should do something. It'll be law yeah. school, and then. Since I don't want to be a lawyer, I'll figure out something else. But
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. So, so, bring in a scope. Uh, have almost like a kind of like a fireside chat. So the person doesn't actually have to prepare. Like really, you know, questions you ask, like what are the key skills? How did you learn them? How did you discover this? What did you think when you were in high school you were going to do? How did that change? So the people are going to go, oh, I get to see how to navigate this. Right? This is a little bit of like, for example, what Ben and I were talking about in the startup for you the earlier book. The uh, second thing is in specific. Um, obviously, if you have an aptitude for software and computer science, it's an enormously lucrative career. You should consider doing it. It can be done remotely. It can be done in many re- regions. It'll, like, people think that it's only like you know Google and LinkedIn and Facebook and so forth. Actually, every. every company is hiring software engineers. Yeah. So you know, like I, I, I am quite certain that within Caterpillar, there are software engineers. <laughs> right? And so you know, it's like, look, it's, it's a very wide range. So it's, that's why it's important to do. Now, even if you don't have an aptitude for it, knowing it so that you know how your job changes and industries change and so forth, so you're familiar with how software creates a different product, a different pattern of work within a company, is super helpful to you no matter what you're doing. Even if you're, for example, being a barista at Starbucks,
0: isn't that a hard thing to teach in high school? Other than through the high sc- the school of life, I mean, you've learned a- you know as much about that as anybody in the no. world. Maybe maybe there's three people who no know more, but you know, you've seen a lot, learned a lot, both of you. Um, it's hard to tell people that. So when you think about what you do in that classroom, it's hard to think about what that might be to give people that appreciation. Well, what would you do? Well, I mean, so, but this is one... I'll re- bring you in. You don't have to run the school. You're just going to run the computer science part of the class. No, I understand. But, but there's a bunch of online resources,
1: and CS works this way. That's part of the reason why with code.org and you know, various, you know, there's a whole bunch of online things like Treehouse and other programs for doing this. Go and bring a whole bunch of, like, that's why all schools should be network connected. The Khan Academy, everything. There's a ton of resources out there, right? And so how do you bring those resources into the school in a way that you say, look, whether it's how to do it, the actual skills and the instruction, how to to learn it and get tested on it, but also what to do with it. There are those resources too. Like, for example, you'll have podcasts like this one where the person's saying, here's how CS matters. Well, I'd go find those. I would clip them. I would make sure that that's part of of what students are learning. So they go, oh, I get it. It's not just, oh, do I learn this little computer tricking game? But actually, knowing this will help me
2: no matter what career I go into. You were on the Zynga board for Mm -hmm. several years. Do you think every, do you think CS classes of the future are going to be Zynga games?
0: Some of them. Are they all
2: going to be gamified? And is that, because part of Russ's, part of what I think is interesting is the motivation question. You know, you're 15 years old. Yeah you have a lot more years before you're going to be necessarily needing to earn income, and someone says CS is really important. How do you actually onboard them into, a, into well, an experience that's engaging? Look,
1: I think one thing, I agree. So I, yes, game dynamics. Yes, more approachable content. Yes, more bite-sized. Yes, doable online, like a Khan Academy and everything else. You know, or one of my investments, Moto. All of these things, doable. However, I actually think that one of the responsibilities for all teachers, including CS teachers, including computer science teachers, such as in this hypothetical experience, is to say, look, uh, what is the economic future of your students really, really matters. And so it's partially, it, you're, it, it's beholden upon you to try to give the students as much access as possible to say, by the way, you're going to have to look out for yourself economically, you're going to have to look at it, and here are some ways to do it, and it shouldn't be, you should try to make it as interesting as possible, you should try to make it as engageable as possible, as understandable as possible, but you should be assembling resources however you can to help students understand that they are going to need to be economic actors. That that's like almost everybody has that thing, and if and if they if they don't
0: start understanding that soon, you're doing them a serious disservice. So I'm going to give you the I'm going to push back on that. I'm going to bring in an essay that uh, Ben and I were talking about before we started taping. There's a essay running around on the web. Uh, it's by William Deserovich. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. We'll we'll put it up on the link to the a link to this episode. But it's a rant saying that the Ivy League is just now a networking opportunity for bright inside the box um, people who really don't know how to think anymore they don't see college as a thinking experience a place to explore identity and as a result uh, they're missing out they've be all they come focused on is, is, is getting a, a great job when they got out of school so what's your response to that how do you Ben you you recently wrote a very nice post about um, getting meaning from life and meaning from your job how do you reconcile the fact that uh, if we focus on our careers and our uh, self, uh, our startup, the startup of me, uh, that we're going to have something other than a, than a commercial material existence.
1: Well, the college dropout uh,
2: <laughs> might want to comment on this.
0: Go ahead, Ben, you go first.
2: I'm not sure I actually completely understand your question, Russ.
0: So, so, just made the case for, which is, I mean, I te- try to teach this to my kids, and by the way, one of the things parents can do is, since their schools aren't doing it, they can tell their kids what they do. I thought my dad all all his life Drink, work life, drank coffee, and talked on the phone. Actually, you had a job. There was more to it, uh, and I think it's important to talk to your kids about what you do, and just to give them the experience of what they might want to do or might not want, not want to do. But my question is, is that if you think of, if you're constantly thinking of yourself as a brand, and if you see school as a way to enhance your brand, you're missing out on some things. And I wonder if you if you see if you agree with that tension. And if that softens your interest in this sort of... Um, Vocational. Yeah, exactly. Time, yeah. I yeah.
1: want to actually just say one go. thing. Uh, <laughs> just, about, just about Ben before yeah, yeah. Ben answers. So look, Ben is so intense about uh, kind of the going and accomplishing new experiences and doing things that part of the reason he, he's essentially very entrepreneurial He left college is, like, it's time for me to get doing things. Yeah. right? And so... Uh, like he himself doesn't like brand whatever, it's I go accomplish things. Now with that...
2: Yeah, (laughs) no, I think, I I guess the thing, I agree, I've heard this critique a lot, like you turn, if you turn high school into, you know, the high school experience is going to be bringing professionals to talk about their careers.
0: Just to get you ready for business school, that's what it's for.
2: (laughs) Right, right, that you lose out on some kind of intangible uh, experience of, as you put it, Russ, exploring identity and reflecting on the deeper questions. Um, I actually think there's a lot of that learning that can happen in the world of work. I think the notion that in the workplace as you pursue a career you somehow have to stop thinking about those questions is actually quite misguided. And the exploration of those questions can often be more productive when pursued in concert with living in the real world as opposed to we're going to lock everyone up in the classroom and read books and then just reflect on what really matters. So I, I think you can pursue them in tandem, and in fact, they can be mutually enriching, in a sense. And and so, and this is, and you've talked about this in other shows, Russ, how vocational has a bad rep, and how that's so problematic, given the trends of the American economy. But I, and I think this is one of the, Reed's great contributions, in terms of how he thinks about LinkedIn, and even users, members of LinkedIn, thinking about their professional lives in an, expansive, in an expansive way, and thinking about how their career shapes their value system, and all that kind of stuff. So, I think it's a mistake to think that that reflecting on professional life means you can't also reflect on what really matters, what are my
1: values? 100% agree. I mean, I think whether it's a school context or a work context, the false dichotomy of saying, well, if you're focused on the business and economics, you can't be focused on the other. So you're teaching students, you say, no, they should be paying attention to what their economic life and their economic identity is, but they can also talk about art and ethics and meaning and philosophy, and those are important too. And then when you get into work life, Actually, in fact, you shouldn't say, well, I did that at school, and now I don't do that anymore. <coughs> I have to thank
2: <laughs> you. Yeah. No, and so many of the really interesting meaning of life questions come down to people, right, and how humans mm. work together. And what I love about business is uh, that it's all applied psychology all day long. because <laughs> You're working <laughs> with people to create things. It really is an exercise. And so I think there's so much – I've learned so much more about how people, how humans work together through business and real life rather than reading you know, psychology textbooks and things like that, or foreign, <clears throat> or even philosophers. So there's not, there's something to reading those books, but you just learn so much about so many of those important issues through the world of work.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting um, niche that's, I don't think, being filled by anybody about what you just said. How, how do you, you know, we all understand we learn a lot as we get older just from getting older and from those experiences, but nobody really tries to organize other than the show, The Office. And that's where we, you know, we mock it and and watch it unfold in comical, satirical ways. But uh, it's interesting that, that we don't think about, we talk about lifelong learning, but we don't think about ways to organize our thinking about these adult topics other than the occasional book like The Alliance, which we're going to get to in a second. But but it just it's, uh, it's an interesting question. Let me ask a different um, question of, of both of you, which is, I argue, uh, and I'll say it over and over again because I think it's true and important to remember that this is in many ways, the greatest time to be alive for, for a large number of people in that. Well, the two things that I see that are so obvious are, is if you want to learn something, you can in a way that you couldn't do 20 years ago. The, the, the opportunity to use information is unparalleled. But the other thing is that work is more exhilarating and more meaningful for more people, I think, than ever before in human history. Having said that, there are many people still who aren't part of that process. When you're here, In Silicon Valley, we're taping this in in the LinkedIn headquarters. It's so tangible, you can feel it when you walk around. Literally, you can see and feel how dynamic the people and the ideas are here, the things you hear about. But there's a big sleepy part where there's a bunch of people, especially at the bottom, who aren't getting a good education, can't be part of this because they don't get those computer science skills. Does that worry you? Uh, Very much. I mean, I think
1: that part of the thing that is beholden upon us as technologists, as inventors, as investors, as entrepreneurs, is how do we help create as much systems as possible to give as many people, as broad a swath of people, you know, a shot, right? Uh, An ability to create, we talk about meritocracy, but let's make it real and possible. And so that's part of the reason why, uh, you know, all of the kind of online education efforts, the get connected to the internet, because it's kind of like say, well, how do you do that? Well, if everyone has a device or everyone has access to a device and the device has access to free education, at least, look, it's not as, it's not as helpful as being in a classroom is doing it the right way. But at least you're getting them closer to having a shot at it. And as much as we can do in systematic, leveraged ways, we should do.
2: Ben, you want to come in? I was just a question for you because I I never actually debriefed with you after your panel with Andy McAfee and Peter Thiel and and you. How did that go? Because this is also this is what was the topic? The topic is kind of future. Andy's book, which is the best, teenage, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, well, his, his co-author's been a guest on the program, and uh, Andy was part yeah. of a panel on the future work yeah. and what do we do about folks who aren't who not just aren't contributing to this, which is it can never be a large number, but people who aren't engaged in it, connected to it. The principal thing that I there's many great things in Eric and um, Andy's book. And um,
1: the principal thing, though, I think that it's a very good call to action, which is part of the reason I did the panel with Andy and talked to Eric and Andy about this every so often, is is how do we then, as opposed to technology being something that moves a lot of jobs out of the workforce, right, which will happen, that's part of productivity, it's part of increase, that's a good thing to happen. How do you also have technology that also helps create channels of employment? Uh, helping get people be skilled, kind of educational stuff, helping create new kinds of jobs that create paths for people. And we have to think about that as technologists and inventors, entrepreneurs. How do we create that more? And I think their their book has a very good call to arms on that.
0: Yeah. Any other comments yep. on that, Ben? Okay, uh, let's move to The Alliance. So it's a new book. It uh, came out, I think, this, this month or last yeah, month? A couple weeks ago. Yeah. As, July 8th. Yeah, and it's... Um, it's, it's also a call to arms. It's, it's suggesting we need a different relationship between
2: employer and employee. So lay out the case. Well, I guess I'll give some maybe more macro context given the, the show and, the, and the, your background, Russ. I mean, I, for most of the 20th century, companies in America anyway organized themselves and thought of themselves as families. And uh, if you went and went to school and landed an entry-level job at a GE or GM or IBM uh, you would join the IBM family, and IBM would, in effect, guarantee life, lifetime employment and commit to train you and, and invest in you, and, uh, and the employee, for their part, would pledge loyalty. and kind of be sign up, be fully excited about being a, a company man. Uh, but in the last couple of decades, with globalization and technology and uh, those twin forces, among many others, IBM and GE and GM can no longer afford to offer that kind of deal. Yeah. And, uh, and I think what's most striking about the shift is, uh, and we've mentioned this in the book, uh, in, I think, 1963, an exec at GE said, employee job security is a prime company objective. Mm-hmm. Which I always find so hilarious. You can never imagine an exec today saying, employee job security is one of our top corporate uh, objectives. And then in the early 1990s, Jack Welch said, if you want loyalty, get a dog. At GE, we have one-day contracts prove yourself every single day or you're out of a job. And that's because GE can no longer afford to make employee job security a prime company objective. But the problem with how companies have shifted from family to what we call kind of free agency is that in this free agent, minimalist, laissez-faire relationship, uh, you're not actually building the trust and relationship with your employees that uh, allow employees to do their best work or allow both sides to invest over the long term. And it's that long-term investment that creates innovation and actually creates the kind of adaptation that companies need to be competitive. And so uh, given that shift from family to free agency, the, the the birth of the alliance was, is there a third way forward, a better path forward that can involve the benefits of both prior models, still create an atmosphere where, where relationships and trust can develop, like the family model, but still have the flexibility that companies seek in this kind of free agent model where, whereby you can move talent around, fire talent, hire people with different sets of skills in order to adapt to a global world. And so that's kind of that's the, that's the, the macro context for why we, why we felt we needed to do this book now, is to set forth a new framework uh, for companies uh, for this modern, modern era.
1: And I think the thing I would add to that is people frequently, the real baseline of the alliance is to say, recognize the fact that all industries, all companies... Are heading more to a place where a person works at a company for a while and then goes and works at another company. That's that's undisputable trend. Not just the U.S. It's true in Japan, it's true in Korea, it's true in Europe. It's true everywhere. It's true in China, right? And so, the question is: Given that's a fact, how do both sides play in a way that's that's uh, great for both? Like, how do you take that fact and how do you make that an important part of the way that you actually? Get good results, and so uh, what we said is like the problem is what's happened over the last ten years is it's just not talked about, and so you essentially have these lies of omission, where in that conversation, like people are, well, I kind of know you're going to work, so- you might work somewhere else, but I'm not going to talk to you about it, or I might work somewhere else, or you might, you know, not have me working here, and but we're not going to talk about it, and so therefore, with a lie of omission, you have a decrease in trust, and a decrease in trust means a lack of investment, means a lack of ability to coordinate, means a lack of productivity. And so the question is, how do you get back to that trust? We have those kind of open conversations. And there are, in fact, we can be adults. We can have open conversations about this. And then that sharing of mutual interest now allows you to invest in the future and allows you to, to, to actually know, you know kind of how to play forward.
0: Yeah, my feeling is the, the way we, that a lot of companies cope with it now is they just pretend it's not there. Yep. Uh, we do that in marriage, too, of course. We, 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 we all, I think, have this ideal, which I, I'm in favor of. Of that we're going to marry for life. Uh, it's not a very realistic ideal for most people. So it's an interesting question whether you should confront that or not. Most would say no. You want to make, make sure there's a likelihood that it that, that it lasts. Uh, but in the workplace where we don't have, I think, the same costs and benefits of divorce that we do in, in family, it's absurd that we don't talk about it openly and plan on it and act accordingly. Uh, so what's your solution? You have a, uh, a a simple idea to start with, but then it, it's got some rich components.
1: Well, so the uh, the book, um, what we detail in the alliance is for how to have how to think about this as a manager. Now, obviously, employees or people who are interested in being managers can also find the book useful, but uh, or just students of companies. But it's basically to say the manager should start a conversation where it says, "Look, what we're what our what our our compact is, is we help." you be lifetime employable. We help you with a a tour of duty, a set of projects that help transform your kind of work and career prospects and economic potentiality. In return, you invest very seriously in the company. And we agree that this is over kind of a project over a realistic time frame. Generally speaking, two to five years. But it can depend on the industry and and the region and the country and all the rest of this stuff. And we will have a... Uh, open conversations about it, where we know that, you know, part of what happens at a tour of duty is the company may say, well, that's not really working out, we're changing directions, or the employee may say, oh, I've got this other offer from this other company, or this other thing I want to do, and that's a perfectly fine thing, and both sides recognize that it's honorable. But that both sides also, and we, we wrote a post about this called the Right of First Conversation, which is say, look, part of our loyalty to each other about being on this team, because it's team rather than family together, That we will then say, well, we'll talk to each other first. Before we make a decision, we'll talk to each other and say, well, we'll do another tour of duty together, (laughs) right, so that we can have that kind of conversation. And we detail a bunch about how managers can have the conversation, about uh, why managers or other employees should start it, uh, and how paradoxically, uh, because people are always worried about retention, how being open about this actually creates longer retention, Right, because people feel that you're looking out for them and you're having uh, a, a work environment of trust.
0: Yeah, I always find it strange when a company gets alarmed that its employees are getting job offers. That should be a, a glorious thing, right? Yes. In which, as we understand, sometimes you would encourage your employee to take another opportunity. Yes. And you, you talk about in the book, which I find so useful and, and powerful, that sometimes that's actually good for the company. Not because the, you're glad to get rid of the employee, because it can lead to other connections that are useful.
1: Yeah, so part of the thing that, again, once you realize that what happens with this change in work and workforce is that all companies have a large alumni base of people who are still very active, and, you know, you spent this time together, you hopefully built an alliance of trust, well, why not have that trust still be active? Why not still be able to help each other, still have a relationship that's going? How do you have this kind of you know, not lifetime employment, but lifetime relationship. They can help you with network intelligence of what's going on with in industries. They can refer customers, they can refer employees. Now frequently what happens when companies do this is they say, hey, great, since you've worked here, you should do that for me. A relationship's bi-directional. So in order to have the employees the, the the now alumni still doing that, you should be investing in your alumni. And part of what we talk about is look, here's how you keep the relationship alive, here's how you help invest in them, here's how they feel that a relationship's still active. And so when they go, oh wait, this piece of intelligence, this is useful for the company, or or this person, they may want to work there, they, have, they go, oh, I have a relationship, I should help facilitate that connection for the manager, for the company.
2: That really is the little-known secret of Silicon Valley, I think, which is uh, how porous the walls are between a given company and its pure companies, and how active, the re- how, how active the intelligence flows from alumni back to companies and from employees to employees at other companies, because as all these, all the companies in the Valley are trying to adapt as quickly as possible, and to do so you want information about a great new strategy for uploading address books more efficiently, or a better way to do search engine optimization, or you want to get a tip on a great new engineer that you can hire. And so so much of the culture and policies and philosophies are structured on maximizing the intelligence that flows back and forth. And, yeah, there are some risks that emerge from that. uh, uh, But what we argue in the alliance is that you can actually coach your employees and develop a framework for enabling them to be powerful actors in the ecosystem both while they're employed and then when they inevitably leave someday – to still be excellent um, sources of information back to you and, uh, of course, on the condition that you as the employer continue to help them in whatever their current problem or challenges. is.
0: Yeah, the alliance continues. I can't help but think of a couple things. One is um, the portrait of Steve Jobs and Apple in Walter Isaacson's book, which is very different. What's your thoughts on that relationship there? It's much more paranoid. People are not supposed to even talk about anything related to the
2: company outside. It's but very I mean, unporous. Jobs himself was probably the most committed to network intelligence of anyone. He frequently met with founders and folks at other companies all the time. Uh, and so what – I mean, Reid, i let you chime yeah. in. But one of the interesting things is he it. has – he really took on the burden of network intelligence himself. Um, uh, perhaps to an extraordinary degree for a single executive, where he was constantly whining and dining, founders and folks at other companies gathering intelligence and bringing that back to Apple. The precise relationship he brokered with his employees was, was rather unique and I think different from most of the value.
1: Yeah. And actually, frankly, uh, my view is um, as amazing and as strong and as transformative as a company Apple is and has been, it would be stronger if more of the of, of the employees were actually more connected to the other things that were happening in Silicon Valley, understanding what was going on with cloud services, understanding what was going on with search. I mean, like, for example... The, As an
2: Apple alum yourself, you yeah. don't have much ongoing... <laughs> yeah, they
1: don't, they don't actually do anything for alumni, for example, sure. or there's no real connect, connectivity tissue there. And, and and I think you can see that in instance of their Maps launch. right? Like, if they had actually had... You know, connectivity to understand all these kind of cloud services and how to play and what the requirement was and all the rest of this stuff. I think they would have been much
0: better served on the launch of Maps, as just one instance. But there's a bunch. The other thing I think of when I hear about your ideas is the the employee tells his boss, uh, "I've got a a new opportunity. Uh, I'm going to. I'm afraid I have to take it." And the boss says, "Well, um, we'll be ushering you out of the building with a security guard. By you have told you have 20 minutes. Empty your desk." Uh, you're really talking about a different kind of exit, exit relationship, right? Yes, well, because the question is, is, actually it's valuable to have the relationship with them
1: post their employment. Now, if, the, if you think that something's wrong and you have to do an emergency circumstance because, you, you, you know, there, there are still some cases in which you would do that, but the question is, what kind of ongoing relationship do you want to have with them? And frankly, you actually would rather have, like, so the whole, like, we want to issue you out, that causes your other side to be brinksmen. So they come and give you, oh, by the way, I'm taking a job in two weeks. You have no transition planning. You have no continuity. You'd much rather have the, hey, come and talk to me months earlier. Spend time, like we detail with David Hahn in the book. Spend time, kind of, how do you make that that transition work well? Far better.
2: Because really the question for companies is how can you invest over the medium and long term? And to invest, you need to have some predictability about people being around. And even if they have another opportunity they'll really make sure the transition's smooth in order to enable the ongoing investment. Yeah. And so companies historically, but you know, in, the, in the family era, could count on the, all of their employees being there forever and so they can make these really long-term human capital-type projects uh, work. But in the current era, companies are reluctant to do that. We even hear from HR people. They don't want to do any kind of training program. They want to slice you know, professional development budgets because we don't want to train them and then have them leave the next huh. day, right? And And so... If you can have an open conversation and have trust whereby both sides can can commit incrementally through a series of tours of duty, then you know I'll invest in you, the employee. I'll put you on a long-term project. I'll launch the project. I'll even train you because I know that you're going to stick around. And if, if you have to abandon the tour midway, I know you'll come to me as early as possible and we'll collaboratively work together to make sure that the project can endure.
0: And, of course, you might come back. Which people often forget when they burn those bridges the way they do. Come back, refer someone, (laughs) refer a customer. It's a networked age. It sounds great. Uh, One of the challenges is it seems to be a little bit monitoring intensive. So one of the challenges uh, when I tweeted about this interview, somebody said, make sure you ask Reed and Ben about how you get people to take the long-term interests of the company into account if they're only serving a two-year term of duty. And when I thought about that, I thought, well, you're, you got to interact with that person to make sure that they're aligned with the longer term interests of the company. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I do think that it's part of
1: like some parts of what we're describing, you know, has historically been done for like stars who are on rotations within a company that are being groomed for upper management and so forth. And our recommendation is to bring that through as much of the company as possible. But to make it a collaborative project between the employee, as opposed to like paternalists, you know, where like we have a training program, it's like, no, we're collaborating together. And you may come and say, hey, I should go do this training or class, or I should get this skill, or I think this is kind of something that's going on in the industry, and I should do that, and we should collaborate together. So that takes a lot of that burden down in terms of the management side. The second thing is is that actually, in fact, look, um, having an active conversation about what the future of the company is, what the future of the individual is, that's just good management. If you're, not ha- if you're not putting time into that, <laughs> you know, you have a s- different serious problem. The techniques in the alliance are a way to do that in a
0: high trust, high honesty, high effective way, of, you know, high effectiveness way of doing that. But you write so, in there, uh, one of my favorite lines in the book, great companies have specific missions – that differ from those of their competitors. How do you get employees to buy into that specific mission? Well, part of it is you know everyone's been
1: you know this kind of like you were earlier referred to the office has been part of companies that have said our our mission is we're the greatest technology company in the world and you're like okay you're like, now what yeah, now <laughs> what what's that? And so um, part of it is 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 you have some specificity about you know uh, for example like at LinkedIn it's collect, connecting talent to opportunity. Um, or realizing the um, um, essentially the uh, the economic graph, which is you know all economic skills, opportunities, uh, deals, all realized in a digital space that you can navigate much more effectively. And when you say, well, this is what we're about, and we're not about other things, because to answer that question, you know, obviously I say, what you're not. And so when you do that, people can then visualize it. They can get behind it. They can go, okay, actually, this is part of my identity. This is real. This isn't just vaporware, just not an empty slogan. Well,
2: and there's an additional nuance to this per the alliance, because actually your phrasing of your question, Russ, was revealing. You said, how do you get employees to buy in to the mission? And actually, I think one of the themes we were advocating here in the alliance is, you're both trying to get employees to, to sign up for a, an inspiring company mission. At the same time, you, the company, are trying to understand what that employee's personal mission or vision is in their own life, and trying to define a tour duty that it's both of those those missions at once, right? So it's, it's no longer, you know, subsume yourself to our corporate mission rather than, hey, maybe your long-term vision is you want to start your own company someday or, or, or um, you know, you're really interested in this other field in addition to this field. And so you're going to sign up for a tour because you care about our mission, sure. You really care about your mission and we're going to make sure that this tour duty helps you get closer to being able to fulfill that mission. But it's that recognition of, the fact that there may be some difference and that you're only looking for a sufficient alignment for a specific tour of duty. Because I'm sure there are lots of employees at LinkedIn who find Connect Talent with Opportunity at massive scale really inspiring. And there are probably other employees that say, that's inspiring, but I'm actually really passionate about something else. And I'm doing a tour of duty here because I know I'll learn this specific skill sure. that I'll then take with me when I go pursue that other mission. And that's actually totally fine. Yep, that's
1: totally fine. Although, by the way, Part of what you do is you say, look, we understand this is a tour of duty with this mission. person should still have some connectivity with the mission, even though there's this other mission that mm-hmm. they have much more
0: connectivity right. in. Yeah. In, in many ways, the manager then becomes a, um, a counselor, a mentor, more than just, how do I get the most out of this person? That, that's what I really see is the focus. Is that correct? And managers maybe aren't so good at that. I'm not sure they're good at the other thing either. but.
1: Huh. Well, I think uh, the language we suggest is allies, uh, and it may include mentor, mentorship, but the, the alliance can actually, in fact, be a lifetime alliance, and the part of the reason to get good at it, to manage that way, is because that lifetime alliance can improve both you, you as the manager and the employee. That can be n- massively beneficial over a career. And so you do have to learn the skills of being a good ally. You do have to learn the skills of preserving that trust, and, for example, not just showing, like, well, I only care what you can do for me here, and I don't care otherwise, because otherwise then you're not a lifetime ally. But you do need to have those, and we think that the people who have those skills will
0: be much more successful. you believe in non-compete clauses in contracts? Which is a clause that says, when you leave my company, you can't go work for a competitor. Yeah.
1: Broadly, no. Um, it's one of the things that helps benefit Silicon Valley, because the usual non-compete clauses are actually not applied to giant company A uh, with giant company B, they're usually applied to startups. They're usually applied to forking off. And actually that kind of... They're not
2: enforceable in California.
1: And they're not enforceable in California. Broadly not enforceable. Mm -hmm. There's little nuances. but um, And so I actually think uh, uh, that the kind of the predatory rating is bad. Like the, oh, I go hire a whole department and that kind of thing. That kind of thing should be still penalized. But the notion of he is an individual, you know, I can work where where I best think I should work. I think that's that's part of what we are. That, that, that's a good economic system, and that's part of what's good for the for And it helps
2: everyone run faster per, yeah. you know, one, one of Reed's favorite lines is competition and how it may be a competitor today on certain things. I mean, the Amazon-Netflix case today is the most extraordinary case of, of <laughs> Amazon competing head-on with instant video against Netflix streaming, and yet Netflix running their entire business on Amazon AWS yeah. servers. AWS being Amazon, Amazon Web, Web Services. Services. Okay, so all thanks. of the Netflix back-end technology is on Amazon servers, while at the exact same time Amazon and a separate part of the company is launching video, instant sure. video to compete with Netflix. Yeah. And yeah. that idea that you can actually cooperate on things and compete on other things is, is a really powerful but complicated idea that many people miss in the effort to bash you know, competitors or to be worried over a fact that an employee is now working at a competitor. Yeah. Uh,
0: Given that we live in a networked age, uh, how do you think the Internet's doing? Uh, do you think uh, there ought to be less government or more government with respect to uh, taking care of the Internet? Um, net neutrality, whatever's so the next big thing. Uh,
1: very positive net neutrality allows a lot of entrepreneurial innovation. Uh, actually creating, you know, kind of ask for permission rather than forgiveness is a real uh, Quelling of challengers to incumbency, so I think net neutrality is good. I also think that the, the 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 threats of the balkanization of the internet are really bad. I think it's bad actually not just for entrepreneurs, but I think it's bad for consumers and countries. And of course, you know, a decreased trust environment from Snowden and the NSA is a seriously bad thing. And I understand how that causes people to say, "Well, maybe we should balkanize the internet," but I actually think having a more global internet is generally better. Uh, so I think the internet has been doing pretty well and part of it, we should learn from what are the things that have done well and have gotten us to this really good place and make sure we preserve those.
2: Comment, Ben? Do you want to add anything? No, I think it's, I think it's inspiring to see what Google and Facebook in particular are doing in terms of trying to bring connectivity to parts of the world, people who are not yet connected. And I believe, I don't, I haven't seen the latest stats on how many people are online, but I believe there are more people coming online than have been online, right? And so it's still very early days in terms of what's this network world vision that we've been talking about in this episode. I mean, it's still very early on to see how that will fully play out when you have billions more people participating in these networks together.
0: So you were both involved in venture capital um, and not just LinkedIn. And uh, recently had Sam Altman on the program and he talked about, we talked about the next big thing. We talked about health, wearables, uh, Bitcoin, and then uh, he talked about energy, which is where he thinks we need to, uh, where he thinks there's a big opportunity. Trevor he go thorium, nuclear? Uh, n- he didn't talk uh, about it. Uh-huh. He, he, he did indirectly, yeah. Uh-huh. He talked about nuclear power. Uh-huh. Um, where do you guys thumbnail on the next big thing? Are these the next big thing, any of these things, or are they just kind of flares? Uh I think that people overemphasize. I think, well, wearables is interesting broadly. Love Sam, I agree with all that stuff. Uh, well, those are mine Sam, yeah. well although Sam agreed health he thought health yes. was big, wearables were big, and he thinks bitcoin he 's still skeptical, and then he added energy Uh-huh. yeah, um,
1: so I think bitcoin 's very high beta, but potentially super interesting. Uh, I think wearables tends to be because a little people can visualize it a little bit more. I think they're, I think it 'll be a slower process than people think, although I think it 'll be important. I think the things. It, uh you continue to add to that is actually I think the data revolution in terms of how uh, uh you know what is quote unquote called big data transforms uh the applications in the world. And like a simple one is like Waze, which is like traffic routing. That's W-A-Z-E. Yeah. And and that's just big data creates applications that has you do navigations. Like one that I think is 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 um lost on that list is the intersection of biology and computing, personalized medicine, which medicines really work for your genetic type, what things are actually going on. I think that is, uh, and it's both two directions. It's, it's how do we read and understand, but also how do we make. Uh, and I think that's a massive yes, transformation. I agree.
2: You know, for me, the only thing I'd add on the, taking the med- medical team is cognitive science. We still know just so little about our brains, yeah. uh, consciousness. And I'm very intrigued, and Reed has heard me talk about this, though, for a couple of years, mm-hmm. in kind of cognitive superpowers Mm-hmm. And the we're, well, know. Lucy is coming out
0: this. I think this week or next with uh, Scarlett Johansson. She uses more than ten percent of her brain, and so she's got cognitive superpowers. I,
2: try. I, didn't know that. I saw a uh, billboard for that. I wasn't.
0: Yeah, that, that was the that's what it's about. Okay. She's uh, <laughs> she's yeah. So so just around the corner.
2: Yeah, <laughs> very exciting, <laughs> Soon to a movie near you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> no, seriously, what what do you think is coming there in terms of cognitive? Well, I, I I think I'm very. I mean, I think one of the most interesting ethical issues that are playing out in classrooms on Wall Street and increasingly Silicon Valley are the use of, uh, very easy to obtain drugs, um, that help you focus, that help you, uh, stay up and not sleep. And I just think that's chapter one in a very long book of, of drugs to come and techniques to come that will allow us to hack our brains and, uh, do all sorts of things. And I, and I think there's a, for people who are driven and ambitious, um, They seem to be willing to pay any price, both monetary as well as to accept a certain amount of unknown side effects to increase their overall ability to to think and to do. So both from an entrepreneur perspective, is there ways you can continue to innovate on that front, but then also from an ethical perspective, how are we? And from even an inequality perspective, imagine if people who have the money to spend $200,000 a year taking drugs that make them think faster, that make them think more creatively, that make them only have to sleep three hours a night with no side effects, uh, what is that going to do in terms of the inequality question? I think really complicated, really interesting, and we're basically starting to live it now. I mean, I have friends that take modafinil two or three nights a week, which are the drugs that Air Force pilots take when they start missions in the middle of the night to basically stay up for 24 hours. Mm. Uh, no side effects. Uh, so it appears. So it appears. Um, and, but even longer-term studies show no side effects. and, and So and, far.
0: Because <laughs> no, I have a, I have a yeah. friend who is in that... In that sphere, and I'm I'm a little worried about him because he says studies show no side effects. I'm thinking, how do you know?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it is the steroid era in baseball, of course, as we discussed. But the cognitive side of that is far more interesting and far more important in terms of society. So basically the
0: chess championship is going to be a test for modafilin or whatever it's called (laughs) to make sure you're clean. I'm surprised there aren't (laughs) blood tests already for
2: (laughs) chess tournaments and the like.
0: Well, it's, um, I think that line, I agree with you. I think it's going to be fascinating. I think that line has already been so blurred. I mean, do you, do you handicap? you only let a person study a few hours a night? I mean, where do you draw the line between what's called fair and unfair? It's going to be very difficult, I think, and it's all going to happen. Agreed. Last question, we're getting late. Um, what's the next tour of duty for uh, Reed and Ben that you can talk about? Collectively or individually? Yeah, individually. What are you doing now? What do you think you're going to be doing?
2: Well, you know, for me, it's we're obviously spreading the word about the alliance um, and uh, helping propagate that around the world. Um, and in terms That's what of what I'm here for, yeah, yeah. It's here for you. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things I've, and Reed knows as I've been spending a lot, and we both have been spending a lot of time thinking about the future of, of news, journalism, and information. Um, I'm very, you know, these sorts of podcasts are obviously just the beginning of what will be a large reinvention of how people consume information and it gets back to our earlier discussion of the ideal high school classroom. Is there a way that you can better empower people to get information about what's happening in the world in a way that's actionable, that can allow them to improve their life as it's lived on a day-to-day basis and improve the world? Is there a business opportunity uh, to do that? Is that just a philanthropic opportunity to blow up all the existing journalistic institutions and create something new there that's something that's really interesting. So I've, we've been spending a lot of time thinking about those sorts of ideas as potential yep. next chapter for me.
1: Uh, and one of the benefits I have of being an investor uh, is I actually get to pursue, pursue uh, additional tours of duty that are you know, synchronous. So I obviously have a whole bunch of stuff I'm doing with LinkedIn, a bunch of stuff I'm doing with Greylock as a venture firm. but. It could be a news thing with Ben. You know, I've just recently announced an investment in Zappo, which is this Bitcoin wallet, because, um, you know, Bitcoin really attracts. So starting a tour of duty as a board observer in that. And and uh, and so for me, I have uh, a number of concurrent tours of duty because of the scope of what I'm doing. Power of leverage, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and,
0: you're, and I'm sure you're only sleeping three hours a night, right? Uh, a few more, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, not, uh, enough, not enough. Not yes. enough, <laughs> My guests today have been Reed Hoffman and Ben Kasnoka. Gentlemen, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Russ. For... This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.